All right, if we can come together again for our second hour. As we're coming together again, uh, a reminder that tapes of the entire lecture series will be available during the KROOKS conference in May. And you have a flyer <coughs> handout on the KROOKS conference in the back so that you may know the dates and the topics for that conference. Uh, it will precede our first graduation historic event in the history of Northwest Theological Seminary, and uh, <clears throat> we would also welcome your attendance at graduation at 10.30 on Saturday, May 14th. But on Wednesday night, May 11th, we will begin our conference with an evening address either by my brother, Dr. William Dennison, or myself, depending upon when Bill gets here. And then on Thursday morning and Thursday afternoon, we will have uh, lectures on uh, various topics, which are on the, the sheet, the schedule. And then Thursday night, we'll have another evening lecture, and it'll be tag match. Uh, whoever doesn't get Wednesday night gets Thursday evening. <clears throat> and then Friday morning and Friday afternoon, but not Friday evening uh, for the conference. And again, we welcome your attendance. Uh, if you work during the day, please uh, remember that the evening lectures are open to the public. The conference is open to the public. Uh, believe me, if you have been able to stick with this series of lectures, and most of you are still here, and I praise God for that, I realize that these are academic and seminary-level lectures, and you are not trained theologians at that level, though you're trained theologians at the level of lovers of Christ Jesus. And you, you've hung in there. Uh, You'll be able to handle anything that's coming in this conference. So uh, do not be intimidated by the titles or by the individuals that happen to be speaking. Uh, there is none of us that's speaking that is of any reputation. Believe me, uh, we are all uh, aspiring to be humble servants of Christ. We're not trying to build uh, castles or empires of our own. Uh, at any rate, uh, <clears throat> please uh, feel free to come and listen to whatever you wish. Uh, you don't have to come to every lecture if you're not able to do that. Just come to what you're able to come to, uh, and you're, and you're uh, heartily welcome. And then you will notice <clears throat> that uh, my brother Bill, who is uh, chairman of the interdisciplinary department at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, uh, my brother Bill uh, <clears throat> will be teaching the uh, Introduction to Systematic Theology and Apologetics uh, two hours each course each night for five days for three weeks. Uh, that is an intense crash course, um, but uh, again, if you're interested, uh, you're certainly welcome to attend any of them or all of them if you wish. Uh, <clears throat> I have not seen my little brother Bill teach before until two years ago when he was here to teach the apologetics and uh, I was absolutely stunned. Uh, he's a remarkable pedagogue, just a remarkable teacher. And uh, uh, his, his expertise is Vantillian apologetics. And uh, as Pete Vostein said, who listened to Vantill in, in person when he was a student, as Pete Vostein said, he said, I've never heard Vantill done any better since then. So if you're interested in that style of apologetics, we've placed the apologetic two hours from 7.30 to 9.30 uh, for lay people who may want to take it in. Now, uh, again, uh, that's, th that's fairly uh, heavy going, but uh, 
Uh, if you're interested in sitting and listening, please feel free to come and do that, even if you can't come every night. The students that take it for credit, they have to come every night, every class. And uh, so you might, you might be in prayer for them, <laughs> as well as for my poor brother. <laughs> but uh, he did very well with his back-to-back two years ago, and uh, so... Uh, I've asked him if, if we could do it in the evening for the sake of letting laypersons like yourselves who may be interested come, even if you only can come once, a, once in a while. And he said that was fine. So uh, we will we'll do it in the evening, uh, 5.30 to 7.30 on the introduction to systematics and 7.30 to 9.30 on apologetics uh, from May 16th on to about June 3rd. David? I, I don't uh, know that we've decided on that because uh, uh, Bill, uh, Bill would have the last uh, decision on that, whether he wants that material out, uh, you know, as we hope to continue to have him teach it. Uh, that's the thing about teaching courses. If you put them on tape, then people don't want to take them. Uh, uh, it, it's not likely that the Gospel of John is going to come back soon in our curriculum. Uh, uh, this was a kind of... Uh, uh, unique year in that regard. So uh, I'm not hesitant about uh, letting these lectures go out. And the other thing is I've always changed these lectures every time I've done them. So uh, if if I do it again uh, in the future, Lord willing, uh, there'll be some differences. Um, All right, so the tapes or the the CDs of this series will be available during the KROOKS conference. So there's a reason for you to come to the conference, at least Please come to one session and pick up the tapes. Yes, Lee? Oh, yes. Alfreda? Yes. Would there be a bookmark that one could go to Now you're ask are you asking about Bill's courses? With with the apologetics? Yes. Uh, Bill has a has a book list and Ling can give that to you if you'll leave her your email or send Ling an email. Ling's email is registrar at nwts.edu and she'll be happy to send you books uh, Bill's reading list. You're welcome. All right, now to John chapter 20 and you'll notice that you have a uh, a handout and as we go along uh, I think you'll be able to fill in the blanks in the handout but I will go over it uh, at the end of the lecture John closed his account of Black Friday his narrative of Jesus journey from Gabbatha to Golgotha at a tomb a sepulcher a crypt tombs are for laying bodies No body has been laid in this tomb, this new tomb, this new garden tomb. The first body laid in this new garden tomb is the body of Jesus. A vacant crypt becomes the receptacle of the corpse of Jesus. Though a new tomb, it is the old story. Life ends in death. Sepulchers are for the dead. Jesus is dead, no Passover plot here. The exclamation point which death places upon the life of Christ, the tomb twice over mentioned in verse 41 and verse 42 of the previous 19th chapter, is here emphatically as a double exclamation point upon the fact that Jesus is dead. What is done with tombs is done with Jesus' tomb. What is done with dead bodies is done with Jesus' dead body. It is the old, old story. Death is final. Death is irreversible. For the sons and daughters of the protological Adam, death was final. For the sons and daughters of Abraham, death was final. For the sons and daughters of Jacob Israel, death was final. And the eschatological Adam, death. The eschatological son of Abraham, death. The eschatological Israel, death. 
John 19 closes with the finality of that word, which has echoed and re-echoed down through the history of redemption since Genesis 3. And he died, and he died, and he died, and was buried. The reader of John's Gospel has difficulty sensing the darkness at the end of chapter 19. We know the end of the story. The ending tempers the blackness of Black Friday. From back in chapter 2, we have anticipated this moment. But chapter 2 tells us death is not to be the end of Jesus' story. How do we stand with Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus as they gaze one last time upon the shrouded corpse of their Lord, turn their backs upon the dead, walk out into the land of the living, and roll a stone over the mouth of the sepulcher? How many funerals had Joseph and Nicodemus attended? How many times had they seen the body laid in the grave and the grave sealed shut? How many times had death had the final word? And as they looked at one another before retiring to their residences to celebrate the Passover, what was etched on their faces, reflected in their eyes, burned into their hearts. What? The sadness, the soberness, the finality of death for one they loved. Resurrection, that was an event far in the future. Resurrection from the dead, that was associated with the end of history. Transition from death to life, that awaited the renovation of the cosmos. Jesus was shut away in his garden tomb by his Jewish friends to await the end of the world. Only on that day did the Jews expect the resurrection of the dead. The end of the age and the resurrection, these were coterminous in Jewish eschatology. But the resurrection of Christ the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, the resurrection of the Son of God, transforms Jewish expectations of the end of the age. The resurrection of Christ transforms Jewish expectations of the renovation of the cosmos. The resurrection of Christ transforms Jewish eschatology. If Christ is risen. The end of the age is upon us. If Christ is risen, the new creation of the cosmos has occurred. If Christ is risen, the eschaton has arrived. The resurrection of Christ produces a paradigm shift. It produces a paradigm shift in the eschatological expectations of the Jews. The future moves into the present. The end of history advances to the midst of history. The new creation is a reality already. The eschatological is a category which defines history since the dawn of the resurrection age in the resurrection of the Son of God. What is startling about the resurrection of Christ is not the resuscitation of his body, miraculous as that was, historical event that it was. What is startling about the resurrection of Christ is that it makes, it marks, it points, it demarcates the turning point of the ages. The resurrection of Jesus is crucial to what makes Christianity Christianity. Otherwise, you reduce us to the level of horizontal eschatologism, whether it's Jewish, whether it's Buddhist, whether it's Islamic, whether it's communist, whether it's socialist. You reduce your eschatology, your future hope, to the horizontal. That is not what happened on the first day of the week, not 
what happened then. An eschatological event, the resurrection of the dead, inaugurating an eschatological era, the age of the resurrection, it has already occurred. All history is now lived out. Zischen den Zeiten, between the times, between the resurrection and the resurrection, between the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. The cosmos has already been touched by resurrection. This present age is already dominated by the resurrection. Since the empty tomb of Jesus, resurrection life is the characteristic of this semi-eschatological arena. If the resurrection of Jesus in John's Gospel transforms Peter and John, Mary Magdalene and the other disciples and Thomas, it transforms them by radically altering the Jewish eschatological expectations. These were Jews. They did not expect the resurrection in the midst of time. When they saw it, for their eyes in front of their face, handled it, touched it, were breathed out upon it, they knew that all of their Jewish expectations were wrong. And history had been transformed. And something no Jew had ever projected had entered by the serendipity of God into their history. They could never be Jews again. Never. Because they were Christians. Resurrection Christians. Since Jesus risen came to them Nothing for them ever the same again. The historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. And that historicity is absolutely essential to the historical Jesus. No, not the historical Jesus of liberals who want to make him a historical Jesus like you and I are historical persons. No miraculous, no supernatural no concrete objectivity. The historicity of the resurrection of Jesus, crucial to the miraculous Son of God historical Jesus, is not only evidence of the supernatural character of Christianity, it is a demonstration of the eschatological character of Christianity. Like so much in Calvinism, It is a both and, not an either or. It is both supernatural evidence and it is eschatological demonstration. The resurrection of Christ is not only apologetically valuable, and it is apologetically valuable. It can be defended. It is theologically essential. Since the resurrection of Jesus, our theology like the disciples' theology, is semi-eschatological. There is no longer any justification for mere horizontalism, anthropocentrism, moralism. Christianity is mere, Christianity which is mere horizontalism is an implicit repudiation of the theological implications of the resurrection of Christ. Christianity, which is anthropocentric, is a denial of the semi-eschatological character of the resurrection of Christ. Christianity, which is moralistic, is a renunciation of the eschatological life brought forward in the resurrection life of Christ. In other words, since the resurrection of Jesus Christianity is fundamentally eschatological and any neglect, any downplay, any avoiding of that reality is an implicit repudiation of the defining character of the gospel. 
The gospel of the risen Jesus is eschatological or it is no gospel at all. Jewish horizontalism, ethical moralism, anthropocentric reductionism, but not not the eschatological penetration into history of the life, the resurrection life of heaven itself. Such a gospel is no different than the message of Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, any moralism you choose in this world. For they will reduce all of life to the ethical and the horizontal and the moral as they define it. Hence, the resurrection of Christ is the dawn of the semi-eschaton. We gaze back upon an empty tomb in the realization that nothing can be the same again. The resurrection of Christ has raised us up together with him. The resurrection life in Christ has been poured out upon us from the glory sphere. The resurrection age has taken possession of us in the one who has taken possession of resurrection and joined us to him. Indeed, because Christ has been raised up, we can never be the same again. John chapter 20 is structured to emphasize the historicity of the resurrection as well as to underscore the transforming power of the resurrection. I use that term historicity intentionally. I am emphatically defending the facticity, the reality, the time and space historicity of the empty tomb, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. I am not dumbing down the empty tomb with a mythical idealization a hallucination or illusion. I am emphatically saying, if Jesus did not rise, we are of all men most miserable. You can close the doors to the church. You can shut up the coffers of the kingdom. You can say we're all frauds and deceivers and liars. If his body is in that grave and the bones of Jesus are in Palestine today somewhere. My systematic theology professor at my liberal seminary said it wouldn't make any difference to him if they found the bones of Jesus tomorrow. Well, it would make a big difference to me. Yeah, I went to a liberal seminary. I've heard it all before. John chapter 20 is structured to emphasize the historicity of the resurrection as well as to underscore the transforming power of the resurrection. Mary Magdalene, Simon Peter, John visit the tomb, find it empty, grope for an explanation. John believes. Mary Magdalene tarries. Mary Magdalene tarries at the mysterious empty tomb. And then she encounters Christ, and she believes. The fearful disciples gather on Easter Eve. Jesus appears to them, and they experience the insufflation of the Holy Spirit. Now, this term, insufflation, you've probably never heard it before. The vocabulary lesson for tonight. The term insufflation comes from the Vulgate or the Latin edition of this text, which reads, insufflavit, from which the English word insufflation comes. And that text in John 20, verse 22, is the Latin rendering of he breathed out upon them. So the insufflation 
is the breathing upon the disciples by Jesus. Finally, Thomas, doubting Thomas, meets the risen Christ and utters the sublime confession that no Jehovah's Witness can utter, my Lord and my God. Come on, you JWs. If Thomas says he's my God and he's a flesh and blood creature, then Thomas is guilty of idolatry and Jesus should have rebuked him and said, get up off your knees, Thomas. I am no God. Don't commit idolatry. But he didn't. Because, of course, he isn't a mere creature. Because, of course, he is God. And he takes the adoration and worship due to God. And he delights when Thomas says, My God! And so do we. The risen Christ proves the reality of his resurrection to each group. While each group, you will notice, is transformed by the power of his resurrection. Now, there are two venues in this 20th chapter. The garden of the empty tomb, verses 1 to 18, and the Jerusalem room, verses 19 to 29. Each location contains two sub-scenes. Mary Magdalene with the two disciples, Peter and John, in verses 1 to 10. Mary Magdalene without the two disciples, yet with her Lord, verses 11 to 18. And then the insufflation, verses 19 to 23. And finally, the appearance to Thomas, verses 24 to 29. It is still dark when this chapter opens. Mary comes, verse 1, while it is still dark. The new covenant Sabbath opens with darkness. Darkness over the garden. First day, behold, deep darkness. Day one, darkness was upon the face of a world new created. The first day of the new creation begins as the first day of the old creation. Darkness. Why is it dark before the dawn? Why blackness before light? Why cosmic darkness first before cosmic light? Fiat looks, let there be light. Why death darkness before resurrection life? Fiat vita, let there be life. In the darkness of the first day, a solitary female, a solitary female figure moves towards death before the dawning of the light as if the darkness of the previous Friday has not been lifted, she comes in the dark early on the first day of the week. How much darkness she has brought with her. Is she reeling with the memory of the dark madness of her own former torment? What black flashbacks of demonic Darkness swirl through her mind. The one who had lifted the darkness, drove out the demonic blackness, has been shut up in darkness, as if the black demons abandoning her have bound him up in their obsession, their diabolic obsession to shut out the light. Why is it so dark again, she wonders. He let me see the light, unleashed the darkness which tethered me, but they hung him on a cross. Oh, the hour of darkness and the power thereof. Why does he have to enter the darkness? The light of the world, tethered by darkness, entombed in darkness, blackness, blackness. 
pitch blackness all around him. Chaos, black chaos. Night, death, tomb, no light, no life. Mary Magdalene appears shrouded in darkness on the first day of the new creation. On that first day of the old creation, angels sang the coming of the light. Heavenly messengers from the regions of infinite light extolled the transition. Let the light shine in the darkness. Heaven's light dawns upon this dark tomb. Light is shining inside the darkness, inside the chaotic darkness of day one. But this darkness is thick darkness, blurred by tears, misled by the clouds, the dark clouds of unknowing. Sir, if you have carried him away, carried him away from this darkness to lay him in another place of darkness. Take the darkness from me. Tell me in what alternative place of darkness you have placed him that I may take him away. Sir, I cannot overcome this darkness. It hides my Savior. It covers my Lord. Sir, I cannot see for the darkness that remains. Mary. And it is not dark anymore. Mary, let there be light. Mary, let there be life. Rabboni, the light shines in the darkness. Rabboni, no cryptic dark. Rabboni, life. You are life, not death. Rabboni. And she clings to the light. She holds fast to the life. She has no desire to return to the darkness, to the chaos which swirled about her on this first day of the new creation. I will hold on to the light. I will cling to the life. I will not let him go. But Mary, this is only the first day of a new creation. The first day of days infinite and eternal. Mary, The day of ascension is before me. You cannot cling to me. Mary, the day of my session at the right hand is before me. You must not cling to me. Mary, the day of my intercession for you before the Father is before me. Stop clinging to me. Mary, the day when I will receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That day is before me. Mary, this day of light and life is to be surpassed by a never-ending day of everlasting light and eternal life. Do not hold on to me now. There will be a day when you shall hold on to me forever and ever and ever. Mary, I am telling you these things so that you may no longer walk in the darkness, but have the light of life, resurrection life. And Mary Magdalene has it in having Jesus, she has. I cannot leave this section of John's Gospel without mentioning the sermon by Gerhardus Voss entitled Rabboni. Based upon this text, it is arguably 
the finest sermon ever written. But whether it is worthy those high accolades or not, it is worth your reading and meditation. Take a Sabbath afternoon or a Sabbath evening and sit down with Voss's grace and glory in which that sermon Rabboni is printed and feast your soul upon the sweet love of the resurrected Christ. You will not go away empty. And if you cannot find the book, go to the krooks.com website and look for it and download it and print it off free. And as you read that sermon, read it slowly and savoringly. Read it patiently. Read it with understanding. Read it from the standpoint of Mary Magdalene. For it is beautiful. And it is a sermon which will raise up your heart with the risen Christ Jesus himself. John 20 opens with Mary Magdalene in the darkness. John 20 leaves Mary Magdalene in the light. Verse 18. John 20 opens with Mary Magdalene seeking for Jesus among the dead. John 20 leaves Mary Magdalene having found Jesus alive from the dead. John 20 opens with Mary Magdalene running to the disciples. They have taken away the Lord and we do not know where they have laid Him. John 20 leaves Mary Magdalene coming to the disciples. I have seen the Lord. And He has told me the best is yet to come. When I can hold on to Him forever. The resurrection breaks in upon Mary Magdalene. The resurrection marks the dawn of a new creation. Darkness is changed to light. Death is changed to life. The resurrection enfolds Mary Magdalene in the eschatological light, the eschatological life, the eschatological Lord. The Sabbath of the new creation is semi-eschatologically oriented. Life and light and fellowship with the Lord now and not yet. To trivialize the Sabbath of the new creation, to profane the Sabbath of the new creation, to make the Sabbath of the new creation common is to de-eschatologize the Sabbath of the new creation. We are the Easter people. Our Sabbath is a reflection of the now, not yet life of the resurrection in and through the Lord of the resurrection Sabbath. Sabbatizing is a semi-eschatological reflection of the eternal heavenly Sabbath sanctification now. And therefore, you are called to observe it now. The final two sub-scenes of chapter 20 reveal interesting parallels, as Charles Talbert has demonstrated. Look at your handout. If verse 18 is included as a kind of overlap, the marker which delimits the sections is the phrase, I, we have seen the Lord, parallel verse 18 and 25. Mary Magdalene sees the Lord, and the disciples minus Thomas see him too. The disciples see the Lord, and Thomas sees him too. As an aside, one should note the vocabulary of seeing which pervades this chapter. There are all kinds of words sprinkled through this chapter for seeing, beholding Jesus. In other words, Thomas, being from Missouri, the show-me state, proves the old adage, seeing is believing. Not seeing, yet believing is also blessed, verse 29. Not because Christ commands irrational faith, without reason, not because Jesus suggests some Kierkegaardian leap of faith, but because the faith which believes without seeing the actual risen Christ 
Is the faith grounded in what the disciples have seen and believed? Their seeing makes our believing credible, reasonable, blessed. Continuing the parallels between the scene of insufflation and the scene of revelation to Thomas. Notice the time indicator in each pericope. Verse 19, evening on that day, the first of the week. Verse 26, after eight days. The situations are parallel. I believe the locations are parallel, but that is implicit, not explicit, by which I mean both scenes occur in the same room. Verse 19, the doors were shut where the disciples were. Verse 26, the disciples were inside the doors having been shut. Christ's presence is parallel. Jesus came and stood in their midst. Verse 19, Jesus came and stood in their midst. Verse 26, Jesus' greeting is parallel. Verse 19, peace be to you. Verse 26, peace be to you. Jesus' evidential actions are parallel. Verse 20, he showed them both his hands and side. Verse 27, reach your hand and put it into my side. These duplications, parallel redundancies, are intentional. It is as if preparatory to the summary statement of his gospel. Verses 30 and 31 of this 20th chapter, John sums up the significance of the resurrection but but sums up the significance of the resurrection in conjunction with the eschatological aspect of the Johannine conception of the Spirit, as well as the Christological confession, which now takes on dramatic new meaning in the light of the resurrection of the Son of God. The insufflation scene is a new creation scene. The Holy Spirit is breathed upon the disciples, not only in fulfillment of Christ's testamentary disposition, John 14 to 17, but the Holy Spirit is breathed out upon the disciples as God breathed into Adam's nostrils and man became a living soul, Genesis 2, 7. While the prolepsis of the insufflation may anticipate Pentecost, the analepsis of the insufflation reflects the breath of God in the beginning of the creation. The resurrection of Christ marks the bestowal of the Spirit as nothing less than a new beginning, a new creation. The disciples, the antitype of a new humanity, a mankind filled with the Spirit, the Spirit of the risen Christ, the living Spirit of the living Christ, the eschatological aspect of the Spirit who breathes the resurrection, resurrection life of Christ into his disciples, a life oriented both horizontally Resurrection of Christ in history and vertically. Resurrection life now come down from above in history. The Spirit is life, breathes life, gives life because He is the Spirit of the living, risen Christ. The life of the Spirit is the resurrection life, the new creation resurrection life of Christ. This is the life which has been breathed out upon you, breathed upon you from above, from the arena of the Spirit. This life, breathed into you, is the resurrection life of the Son of God. You too have received the insufflation, the breath of the new creation, by the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Nothing, nothing can ever be the same again. What more can I say? about the Christological center of this precious gospel. John records Thomas' confession because it is the perfect conclusion to the resurrection Sabbath narrative. My Lord and my God, verse 28. Did we have some lingering doubts at the pool of Bethesda when Jesus claimed to be God in John 5? Did our doubts linger to chapter 10:33 when Jesus is accused of claiming equality with God? We stand with Thomas, don't we? We stand with Thomas before he touches wounded hands and side. But a risen Christ compels the testimony, my Lord and my God. Resurrection transforms Christology. Resurrection is a witness vindicating the deity of Christ. The person of Christ is by resurrection revealed to be the Son of God with power in the Spirit. 
the eschatological man from heaven, first born from the dead, the one who was dead, but behold, he is alive forevermore. The resurrection is the climax, the climax of the endowment with the Spirit which rested upon Christ at his baptism, chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. But, but it is a spirit endowment which now, because of the resurrection, baptizes his sons and daughters with divine sonship, raising up upon their lips the supreme Christological confession, My Lord and my God. And now John says, in the light of the resurrection, these things have been written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life resurrection life in his name. The eschatological resurrection of the dead, the eschatological insufflation of the Spirit, the eschatological confession of faith, the resurrection of Christ changes everything. Nothing can be the same again. Nothing. I will entertain your questions. Or your comments. Or your arguments. David, your hand goes up very quickly. Incidentally, before I take David's question, do you need me to answer the lines on the outline of John 20? Location, verses 1 to 18, garden. Garden. Scene 1, Mary Magdalene and the disciples. Jesus absent. Scene 2. Mary and Jesus, disciples absent. Location, Jerusalem room. Scene one, disciples present, Thomas absent. Scene two, disciples and Thomas present. All right, David, thank you for your patience. Good question. Uh, David's question is with respect to Matthew 27, 51 to 53, and the coterminous resurrection of Old Testament saints uh, with the uh, final death of Christ. It's the only place in the Gospels where that incident is uh, mentioned. The remarkable testimony to the anticipation of the resurrection, the witness of the resurrection in advance of the resurrection. Now, I can't answer the question dogmatically. The question is, did those bodies go back to their graves after they appeared, or uh, did they go in the body to eternal glory? I can't answer the question because there's no uh, indication in the text itself. So I have to remain silent where the text remains silent. Now, if you want my speculative uh, uh, suspicion, my speculative suspicion is that they returned to their graves after they had performed their function and they wait the consummate uh, resurrection of the dead at the end of the age. However, uh, I'm certain that uh, I will not be disappointed if I uh, find out when I reach them in heaven and have a chance to talk to them that, in fact, they were raptured right to heaven afterwards. But it is an amazing parallel apocalyptic instance of the fact that the end of the age has appeared. See, Matthew is doing it in his way. as John does it in his way. They both agree and the fact that the eschatological era has arrived. David? Other David? Obviously, 
question is, does John 1.45 also suggest a rule of threes with the law of the prophets, and since the descent of Jesus is in the line of David, as well as the son of Joseph, and David is the author of many of the Psalms, would that have the rule of the threefold canon there again? Uh, no, I don't think so, and the reason I don't think so is that because the, the parallels between chapter 1 are not with chapter 20 or chapter 19. The parallels of chapter 1 are with chapter 21. And I will attempt to line that out next week as I justify the inclusion of John 21 in the whole gospel and not as an appendix. The uh, very interesting narrative paradigm is that the figures who appear in chapter 21 also appear in chapter 1 and virtually nowhere else. But I'll fill in that. Uh, story next week. Yes, Skeets? You said it right. You not only learned the word, you said the word right. Yes, uh, the question is, is the insufflation in its relationship to Pentecost in Acts 2 a real giving of the Spirit? Yes, it's a real giving of the Spirit, but it is a giving of the Spirit that doesn't seem to have with it the uh, charismatic or supernatural endowment, and that tends to come on Pentecost itself with the tongues and the uh, performance of mighty signs and wonders. So this insufflation is an insufflation of transformation. It binds them into the life of the risen Christ as in the life of the Spirit. But the accoutrements or the extraordinary uh, uh, gifts of that Spirit are going to be poured out on Pentecost, which does demonstrate, you see, that the insufflation is ordinary. The extra endowments are extraordinary. The extraordinary can pass away. The ordinary remains. So we don't put the emphasis upon the extraordinary. put the emphasis upon the ordinary in breathing of the Holy Spirit by regeneration. Yes, Cheryl? Yeah, the question is, uh, the Jews don't recognize that uh, Christ was raised from the dead and, and therefore the Messiah has not come the first time. That is, those Jews that still believe that. Uh, most Jews are very, very liberal. The average Jewish synagogue, either Reformed or liberal Judaism as the term was, would be, is extremely liberal and has very little theology. It is a social, uh, it is a social arrangement. It is a way of maintaining a kind of identity. Um, and if you're interested in, uh, in the most recent discussion, David Klinghoffer has just written the book, Why the Jews Rejected Jesus. Doubleday has published it. Uh, I expect it to have a, a particularly significant impact uh, upon uh, understanding uh, Jewish uh, rejection of Jesus. And it is a temperate volume. Uh, Klinghoffer has actually uh, tried to enter into the spirit of the New Testament. But the bottom line, you see, the bottom line, is the supernatural claim and character of Jesus of Nazareth. That's the bottom line. That's the thing that sticks in the craw. He cannot be God. He cannot be God. That claim is blasphemous. He therefore cannot be resurrected from the dead. That claim is a myth. It's an invention. It's a story that the disciples invented in order to carry on the message of Jesus, the life of Jesus with them, the presence of Jesus with them. You go to any liberal church, that's what you heard yesterday. That, you know, the, the, the spirit of Jesus is still alive in you, even though the body didn't come out of the grave. We don't need a dead body. See, my systematic theology professor, don't need the dead body. I've still got the faith of the resurrection. What do you mean you've still got the faith of the resurrection if, there's, if the body is still down there? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, which is what the whole classroom erupted in, what about 1 Corinthians 15? And he hemmed and hawed all around. Anyway, the, 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 uh, the Jewish objection 
is in, in fact not just the Jewish objection. I mean, it, it, it's the objection of the natural man. The Jews are just a, a, a category of natural man. That's all. I mean, they shouldn't be isolated or extracted for any uh, unusual uh, treatment or regard or, uh, or denigration. They're just like any other unconverted person. The claim of Jesus of Nazareth is nonsense to them. Just like the claim of Jesus of Nazareth is nonsense to your next-door pagan neighbor. Jesus is God. He rose from the dead. Easter's for bunny rabbits. It's not for empty tombs. So, in other words, it's just the, it's just the ongoing belief of the, of the natural man. But then the Jews, in rejecting it, reject it because they refuse to, to see the hour of their visitation. But because of their hardness of heart, you see, gospel comes to the Gentiles. So the Jew and Gentile can be raised up to newness of life. So we, we hope well for Jews and we evangelize them and we, we invite them to come to the Christ of Scripture. I still remember the Jews who came to my church in Ligonier. He was an executive with the May Company in Akron, Ohio. And he was raised a fairly conservative Jew, he and his wife both. They came to Ligonier to get away from Akron, Ohio, from the rat race of the, of the mercantile business. And they would stay in a motel over the weekend in Ligonier, and they'd walk all over town. Ligonier was a beautiful place to walk on, walk around in. It was a small town. It was just gorgeous. Um, anyway, um, they, they came to church, came to, to, uh, to, to our church. And the first Sunday that they were there, they took me aside and said, we want you to know that we're Jews. But we believe in Jesus because we've been reading the New Testament. The power of the Word of God. And those people, they joined the church. Even though they lived in Akron, Ohio, they joined the church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. It was 120 miles away. <laughs> but they were, they were in church on Sunday in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. <laughs> and uh, when they died, and both of them are dead... Uh, yeah, I, uh, I rejoiced that they had come to Christ by the power of reading the Word of God. And they witnessed a good profession, as far as I could tell, to their death. But that's our hope for our Jewish neighbors and friends, that they would come to the Christ who is risen from the dead, and that they would leave death behind in his life. Any other questions or comments? Yes, Geets. The question is, where was Jesus uh, in between uh, Friday when he gave up the ghost and uh, uh, Easter Sunday when he rose? And I believe that having given up the ghost, his soul went up to heaven, to the Father, and that the soul came back on Easter Sunday morning and was reunited with his body, and his body was raised body-soul, just as your body will be raised body-soul at the last day, as your body will go into the grave, my body will go into the grave until that final resurrection. With respect to your reference to uh, he descended into hell, uh, that phrase in the Apostles' Creed, uh, if you read Calvin's uh, institutes on that passage, uh, is uh, completely partitioned from the Roman Catholic interpretation of Jesus descending into the top layer of hell, the limbus patrum, that is the limbo of the fathers, opening the door and letting Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David come out and go to heaven with his resurrection. Uh, that means that when Jesus says to the Pharisees, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jesus was essentially telling a lie because he wasn't the God. He would be their God when they would get out of limbo. So the Roman Catholic Church believes that the Old Testament saints had to be shut away in this upper tier of hell until Jesus finished his work. In other words, the Roman Catholics are the original dispensationalists. Those, those Old Testament believers can't get saved until Jesus actually pays the price on the cross. Now, all Protestantism has rejected that. Both Lutheran and Reformed Protestantism has rejected that. Well, why do they keep the creed? Once again, I recommend Calvin's comment on that in the Institutes. It's a very, uh, very penetrating and very appropriate statement. We don't want to take that statement out of the creed. He descended into hell in the sense that he took upon himself the hellish wrath of God in our place on the cross. And so when we recite that part of the creed, 
It's good for us to remember. In fact, pastors ought to explain it once in a while. They ought to say to the congregation, because there are new people coming into congregation who don't understand this language sometimes. They ought to say every once in a while, now look, when we say this, we don't mean Jesus went into the place of the damned. No, he didn't. We mean that he took wrath of God upon himself. And in that separation, remember, when, when he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When he was forsaken by God, the first time in all eternity, he had ever not known the presence of his father's face. What would happen to hell for Jesus? Huh? Hell for him. To not have the loving face of his father, but the wrath of his father turned against him. Yes, a hell that you and I can't even dream of. So, that's, that's the reason we want to hold that phrase in the creed. But when we say it, let's explain what we mean when we say it so that people understand better and aren't confused by the Roman Catholic nonsense. Uh, David? Okay, the question is, uh, how do I avoid uh, Raymond Brown's parabola and still hold the appendix, that is chapter 21, what he regards as an appendix in the integrity of the whole work? Come back next week. (laughs) Yes, Lorna? Yes, yes. Uh, ascended in the body, in the resurrected body. That doesn't mean it is spirit. In other words, when he dies, the same thing happens to Jesus that happens to you and me. His spirit separates from his body. Well, his spirit doesn't go into limbo. It doesn't go into a holding tank between the end of the crucifixion and the morning of the resurrection. I believe his spirit goes to his father. The work is finished. He's paid the penalty. And so his soul goes to heaven just like your soul goes to heaven if you believe in Jesus. But, he goes, he goes through the last judgment and the resurrection as we will go through it. Only he goes through it before we go through it. So his soul comes back, is reunited with his body on Easter morning, and his body-soul is raised up on the first day. In other words, Jesus goes through in himself, in his own history, what you're going to go through in your history, only it's going to take you to the end of the world to go through it all. But he's already been through it all. Therefore, Your soul and your body are intact, safe, preserved, secure in the body-soul resurrection of Jesus Christ. Good question. Thank you. Margaret, you're free to go if you need to go. Uh, I'll answer questions as long as you want to ask them. Go ahead, Margaret. Well, um, there are those that believe it's miraculous. I don't believe it's miraculous. Uh, I tend to lean towards the theory that the death of Christ ruptured his uh, vessels so severely, the pressure and the weight of bearing uh, the sin of his people was so severe that he bled out into his tissues. And as that blood settled into his peritoneal cavity, it's separated out, much like if you take your blood and you take a a pint of your blood and you set it on the table and you leave it there long enough, it'll settle out into the serum part, which will be on the top, the clearer part, and the particulate part, which will be on the bottom, which will be the darker part. I think that's what happened. What came out was the serum and the particulate part of Christ's settled-out blood as that sword or that spear was pierced into his 
uh, into his side. I think medically, there's a, medical, there's, there's a logical medical explanation for it. It needs no miraculous explanation. Now, the fact that John records it brings the imagery of blood and water, as I said, a reverse blood and water motif from the era of the curse to the era of blessing. That's not the only reason he uses it. He's foreshadowing what he's going to do with it in 1 John 5. But nonetheless, I think the demonstration of a curse reversal, you see, it's not water and blood, it's blood and water. It's a reversal. Hmm? Okay. That, 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 I think, helps, though it doesn't exhaust it all. All right, next week, the last chapter.